These are the daily lectionary comments for November the 13th, Jeremiah 26, beginning in verse 1. Uh, Jeremiah warns the people about the uh, uh, imminent destruction of the temple. And he is attacked by the priests and the prophets and defended by the public officers of the people. And then Matthew chapter 26, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, and we'll talk about what that meant. And Jeremiah 26, beginning at verse 1. Um, this is right after Josiah, the, the, the good king Josiah, the reformed king, to, uh, with whom uh, Jeremiah himself was very close. Not long after he died, his son, Jehoiakim, was placed on the throne. Um, and Jeremiah was ordered to go to the gates of the temple and to begin preaching against it. Now, earlier in Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, uh, Jeremiah's message had basically been, don't trust in this temple. Don't say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and imagine that because this temple is here, uh, disaster won't come upon you. That those are deceptive words, and that is a, 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 a deceptive a way to uh, basically encourage yourself. Be faithful to God. He'll take care of you. Just the bare fact that this temple is here is not going to protect you. But now Jeremiah is preaching much more directly against the temple. He simply says that this temple, very much like what Jesus said, one, not one stone will be left upon another. Uh, Jeremiah essentially says this, this uh, uh, temple is going to be destroyed. It will be, verse 6 says, it will be like Shiloh. Shiloh was the earlier location of the tabernacle that was destroyed. And uh, he says this is what, what it's going to be like. Now, what's interesting after this is the dynamic. We are told, well, well, first off, let's back up for a second. This also is very interesting. The Lord says to Jeremiah, preach this. It may be that the people will hear you and this disaster may be averted. And that's interesting because in the, one, in the same time, you have the prophet saying, this is going to happen. You are doomed. But Jeremiah is not told just to preach that the disaster is about to happen, just to inform the people. But it is also a genuine call for them to repent so that it might not happen. And so you have two things going on at once, the certainty of the destruction and the possibility, if there's repentance, that it won't happen. So one of the things that this is telling us is that if we say it is certain to happen, this destruction of Jerusalem. We're not saying it's certain to happen because God has already willed it to happen and there's no changing God's mind, and so that's that. In other words, the whole thing is predetermined. What we are saying is that it is not predetermined. The people can repent. They are able to repent. They are sincerely called by the Lord to repent, and they can repent. And if they do, the disaster will not, in fact, happen. Now, it may be that the Lord knows that they're not going to repent and the disaster is going to happen. But there's a big difference between God knowing what the people are going to do and God determining what the people are going to do. God is not determining that the people will not repent. He simply knows his people and he knows they won't repent. Okay, so after Jeremiah preaches this, we have this very interesting dynamic where the priests and the prophets really go against Jeremiah for preaching against the temple. That was considered a crime all by itself. It's like sedition or, or treason or something like that. And it says the priests 
the prophets and the people turned against Jeremiah, seized him. Um, and then they essentially brought him to trial before, before the public officials. What's interesting here is what happens in the trial. Following the trial, the public officials come to the conclusion that, in fact, Jeremiah has done nothing worthy of death. And one of the things they say is, yes, he's preached against this temple. But, they say, so did Micah, who wrote the book of Micah. So did Micah prophesy in the days of Hezekiah. This is verse 19. And then they quote him. Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house a wooded height. Okay? And it says, verse 19, did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? So in other words, they're looking at the precedent. Micah had preached against the temple already. And this had been, uh, you know, some, some years uh, prior in Hezekiah's day, uh, uh, probably 50 years or so before. And Hezekiah, good king, did not put him in, in, uh, in jail or put him to death. And so the officials of the land determined that this man has done nothing uh, uh, except preach similar to what prior prophets had preached. And note that the officials and the people uh, uh, then defended uh, Jeremiah, this is verse uh, 16. Um, so the people are on both sides. First, they are swayed by the prophets and the priests to go against Jeremiah. And then they're persuaded by the, the public officials, the, the lay people, let's, let's put it that way, the lay people in the land came to their senses and said, wait a minute, Jeremiah appears to be preaching uh, sincerely from the Lord uh, and pre preaching consistently to uh, what others have preached. We will not put him to death. So that's very, very interesting. And the fact that one, uh, the people are looking to prior prophecies to see the consistency of what Jeremiah is saying uh, they could also look, much more importantly than looking at Micah, would be to look back at Moses. Moses, of course, said the same thing and warned the people about what would happen if they went after false gods in the land, that they would be ejected, which is exactly what Jeremiah is preaching now. Okay, so that's Jeremiah 26. Very interesting chapter. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 20. Our reading today has three little segments to it. The first deals with the one who will betray Jesus. The third deals with the one who will deny Jesus. And the middle pericope uh, is regarding the institution of the Lord's Supper. Let's see how these fit together. First off, uh, Jesus indicates that somebody is going to betray him. And, uh, and they all say, is it I, Lord? Is it I? And then, then Jesus says, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now, sometimes uh, people think, well, what Jesus is doing is actually taking a piece of bread and dipping it in, in a, a sauce. And, who, and whichever one reaches forward at the same time and at the same place, you know, dips his bread too, that's the one. Jesus is giving a signal for which one of them. But that's not what this means. What this means is that the one who is going to betray me tragically is one who is sitting right here at the table with me, sharing a meal with me. In other words, this is a, the deepest kind of betrayal. This is somebody who was in the inner circle and should have been one of Jesus' friends. It's sort of like when Jesus says, Judas, would you betray me with a kiss? So, of course, all of them realize they're all uh, eating with him right now, and so they still want to know, uh, you know who it is. And, and Judas, uh, uh, Judas uh, 
uh, asked, is it I? And Jesus says, you have said so. So you got it. So one is going to betray Jesus. Now the third pericope is about the one who is going to deny Jesus. And this is Peter, of course, protesting that he is going to go to death with Jesus. He will suffer all things uh, with Jesus. He will not turn away no matter what. Jesus has said, you're all going to betray me. You're all going to run, basically, uh, from me. You'll all fall away. But Peter, of course, uh, typically steps up and says, well, I won't. I'm going to go with you even to death. And then Jesus says, no, no, you're going to deny me, uh, Peter, before this night is over. You will deny me three times. Now, so this is the tragedy, the tragedy that Jesus' own close disciples, uh, one of them is going to betray him. One of them is going to deny him publicly three times. All of them are going to fall away. And then right in the middle of this, we have these words of Jesus. We call it the words of institution, and that's because the focus uh, when we think about these words, is the Eucharist, um, the, the celebration of the body and blood of Christ in the worship service. But, uh, and, and, and well, it certainly is that, um, but let's, let's look at it from a different angle here. Jesus' death can be characterized various ways. Some people characterize Jesus' death as uh, the work of a hero, uh, bravely showing uh, what obedience to God and faith, faithfulness to God means. And it means setting aside all uh, earthly things, bravely saving, uh, you know, facing even death, uh, and heroically to the end, Jesus is faithful and, and thereby blazes a way for all of us to follow. So he's the perfect martyr. He's the perfect faithful servant of God. And that's what the cross means. Total, complete obedience to God, total subservience to God, even to death on the cross, okay? That's one way of looking at the cross. Another way of looking at the cross is Jesus as the tragic victim. He, he has given of himself in every regard to these disciples for the purpose only to do good. Um, but it turns out that even in his closest disciples, well, you, of course, you have his own people, the Jewish people, they turn against him. Um, the people who earlier in the week uh, cried out, uh, you know, Hosanna to the son of David, they will betray him. Now it turns out that his own disciples will fall away um, and one will betray and one will deny him. In other words, Jesus is a sad and tragic victim, uh, uh, a victim of the fickleness and the weakness and the faithlessness of human beings. So one looks at the cross as Jesus' uh, uh, great and heroic victory over his enemies. The other looks at Jesus as poor Jesus, um, let down by everybody in the world, and this is what we did to him, and all he ever did for us was kindness. Well, I mean, there's some truth in both of those views. However, here in these words, beginning at verse 26, Jesus gives us the definitive understanding of the significance of his crucifixion. And the significance of his crucifixion is neither of those things. I mean, what it really means is neither Jesus heroically facing death in all challenges or pathetically being abandoned by all those who should have stood near him. No, what Jesus is doing is quite intentional. 
he is going to the cross and he is offering himself. The cross is described in terms of an atoning sacrifice. I am laying my life down for you. I am shedding my blood for you, for the forgiveness of sins. I am doing this. I mean, all of this is sort of in this text, even if he doesn't say it. This is truly what it means that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the atoning sacrifice which takes away the sins of the world and which deals with the thing which separates human beings from God. This is Jesus' interpretation of the significance of his cross. This is what he says is about to happen. All the rest and any other theories that may come about in terms of why Jesus died and what it all meant need to go by the wayside. The only time that any of those other theories or understandings have any value at all is if they are consistent with what Jesus says here. I lay down my life for my friends. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I take it up again and I do it to take away the sins of the world. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's what these words are telling us.